The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth, connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And joining me today is a fantastic dietitian who probably, if I were to define her in a nutshell, would be the first and foremost diabetes educator and diabetes expert. I think uh, Hope Warshaw has been in the field of dietetics for as long as I have, close to 30 years. And uh, I've just followed your career, Hope. You've got fantastic books, articles, but your focus has really been diabetes. And I thought we would need an hour today to really delve into all of the different issues that surround diabetes, obesity, and all the different dietary approaches that are out there. So welcome. Thank you, and it's a delight to be with you, Melinda. I think we should start by noticing what's been happening in our country. We've had this obesity epidemic. I laugh, you know, since the since the time I graduated from my dietetic program, we've seen nothing but an increase in, di- in diabetes and obesity. So clearly something that I'm doing must be wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but really it is staggering, isn't it? We now have the obesity rates among children to the point where we think this will be the first generation that lives less long than their ancestors. Right. And I wonder if you might start the conversation by talking a little bit about how obesity is related to type 2 diabetes. Sure. And um, let me just add, you know, I think that we were both chuckling there, but I don't think either of us think this is a humorous topic at all. Right. Um, It's really something that troubles me day in and day out, and it really is providing me with a lot more passion for what I do. And I was just going to add to sort of build on a statistic that you said about our children, of which I have one generation, will be sort of one of the first generations to not live as long as some of their elders. And the other stat I wanted to mention is that children born in the year 2000 forward, of children born in the year 2000 and forward, one in three will develop diabetes. And when I was at a recent meeting, I heard an even more staggering figure that when you look at the African-American and Hispanic-American populations, the figure is one in two children will develop diabetes. Absolutely horrifying. You're yeah, right. Yeah, it's absolutely horrifying is, um, is exactly right. So you asked about the relationship between obesity and diabetes. Right. And, I mean, absolutely one tracks the other. It's like where you see obesity, you see diabetes. And really very succinctly, and then I'll let you ask me some more questions, Um, It is really the obesity, the extra pounds that someone puts on that is what pulls the trigger of what some people call a loaded gun. So what loads the gun is a family history of type 2 
diabetes or being of a subpopulation like African-American, Native American, Hispanic American that has a higher incidence of type 2 diabetes. So those are two of the factors. Or for women, someone who has had gestational diabetes during a pregnancy. So those are sort of some of the factors that can load the gun. And then you put extra weight on top of that, and that's really what pulls the type 2 trigger. So what happens physiologically on a cellular level? What does weight gain do in particular? Well, I think we're learning a lot more about that and Believe me, the, you know, cellular level physiology is probably beyond my scope, but let me see what I can do to explain. And to back up for a second and say that I feel that we as a society have sort of looked at excess pounds as sort of innocent blubber if you will, right? innocent extra weight. Well, the reality of the matter is that adipose tissue, the fat in our body, we've come to learn is very active tissue. And there are actions going on in that adipose tissue, in all of those cells, those fat cells, that are producing more of certain molecules and biochemicals in our body that are not used to being there in such high levels. And having those things, such as one that you hear about is cytokines, having more of those in our body is setting off negative reactions. And in the diabetes world and and the science behind type 2 diabetes, we're hearing so much more about the connections between what's going on in the pancreas related to what's going on in the adipose tissue and the liver and the brain and also the gut has become a very important area of discussion. And it used to be that all people thought of when they heard diabetes, the only organ was the pancreas. And that's because, oh, the pancreas makes insulin and therein lies the problem. But we're learning very quickly that that's not the case. Hope, do you want to say a little bit more about cytokines in terms of what they are and what they do? Um, and where are they produced? Is it the adipose tissue? I believe it is the adipose tissue that produces cytokines. And would they be inflammatory markers? I believe they are inflammatory markers. So the other thing that's going on that's very much the center of the storm and is sort of the cytokines set off is, as you mentioned, an inflammatory response. Now, it's not like this acute inflammatory response that you get if you have, for instance, a bug bite or you have, you know, some kind of allergic reaction. It is known as chronic inflammation. It's more like a cellular 
type of inflammation. And there seems to be a chicken and egg relationship between inflammation and insulin resistance. Mm. And I don't feel that scientists totally know what comes first, whether it's inflammation that sets off the insulin resistance or the insulin resistance that sets off the inflammation. And I don't know that people really think that that necessarily matters. What matters is that we've got this inflammatory response going on at the and which is set off by the excess weight and cytokines and I'm sure 10 other things, and then that's setting off this insulin resistance. And I, I have begun to talk about insulin resistance as being really the center of this storm. And this storm that sort of rolls forward as people gain weight and then gain more weight as well as aging is that they move on to see to become um, hypertensive or to have high blood pressure and then their blood fats or their lipids begin to become abnormal particularly with triglycerides becoming elevated and HDL or those good cholesterol levels going downwards and then the LDL, which we know is bad cholesterol, it's not so much in the syndrome that that level goes high, but what happens is that the character of the low-density lipoproteins, or LDLs, become more dense. So they become more like baseballs rather than those fluffy beach balls. Mm. And it's those dense, small, dense, LDLs that seem to cause more problems with heart disease. And vascular damage, I guess. Right. And if you keep following this along, because it is a cascade of events that occur really over many years, seven years, ten years, fifteen years, as people progress down this path towards the development of type 2 diabetes, the last thing that happens physiologically is people's blood glucose becomes high enough to cross the line to be diagnostic for diabetes. Well, I want to stop and ask you uh, a little bit more about insulin resistance. You know, I think I think your description of what comes first, the chicken or the egg, is a really good analogy. So I've heard some people talk about how it's the insulin resistance that really leads to the obesity versus the obesity or the weight gain causing the insulin resistance. Can you help me understand that? I feel that it's the weight gain leading to the insulin resistance. Now, you know, we have to make people aware, Melinda, that certainly not everyone who is overweight develops type 2 diabetes. Right. And so, therefore, we know that people have to have some pre-existing sort of, you know, set up in their physiology or their genetic makeup, which when they put on pounds, they will develop type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've all known people, haven't we, that are overweight, 
but who seem to have normal blood sugar. Exactly. And it's always so interesting from a practitioner's standpoint to say, hmm, I'd love to study them more to find out what's going right. You know, I uh, I know in our pre-interview phone call, we talked a little bit about pre-diabetes, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was this phenomena where back when we first started practicing, and of course I started out as a clinical dietitian you know, many decades ago, um, and you stayed in the, in the clinical line of work, and so I'm, I'm just thrilled to be talking to you. But back when we first started practicing, the diagnosis of diabetes was only given when your blood sugar had been much higher than it is today. And so, in other words, we've lowered the bar. The bar has definitely been lowered, and that has been based on good science. And what usually it's an international expert panel that is looking at the research, and what they do is they look at the complications data, Mm. and they look at what are the blood glucose cut points at which people begin to develop the complications of diabetes. And often they're looking at the eye disease data, and that's because eye disease tends to be one of the first complications that you see. Now let me tell you about a pretty mind-blowing statistic um, with a couple of details attached. You mentioned prediabetes. And I know that you're very much aware of a large NIH study that was conducted, oh, late 1990s, ended 2003, called the Diabetes Prevention Program. And it was about 3,000 people. All of these people had uh, what is described and diagnosed as prediabetes. Two-thirds of the way through the study, so at about two years into this three-year study, Um, people had a diabetes eye examination. And what they showed was that in two-thirds of this population, not, I'm sorry, not two-thirds, in about 8%, so pretty small but still significant when you hear what I'm going to say, but 8% of this population already had evidence of diabetes eye disease. Wow. This isn't a population that was characterized as having, quote-unquote, prediabetes. So what was the, tell us what the blood sugar levels are for prediabetes. The prediabetes, and this isn't for management, this is for diagnosis. Right. Is fasting between 100 and 125, and any time of day or two hours after eating, Uh, between 140 and 199. So the numbers to diagnose diabetes, and it's either type 1 or type 2, it's really any diabetes, is fasting above 126 and um, a casual or two hours after eating blood sugar over 200. Now let me bring um, possibly you and your listeners up to about diagnosing diabetes is that as of June and based on one of these international expert panels, several organizations, including the American Diabetes Association and others internationally, are considering 
using the A1C measure as a diagnostic tool for both prediabetes and diabetes. And let's tell everyone what A1C is. Sure. So A1C is the longer-term measure of average blood glucose day in and day out over the past two to three months. Mm-hmm. And typically, this has been used over, oh, let's say the last 20 years, because it was a new test, obviously, that came in during the early part of my career. It's been used for management decisions, along with day-to-day blood glucose numbers. But now the conversation with A1C has evolved to saying, hmm, this actually might end up being a better diagnostic tool than the blood glucose numbers. It will continue to be used as a management tool, definitely. But the research seems to say that we're better off looking at the chronicity of elevated blood glucose rather than possibly just looking at some transient high numbers. Yeah, I think so that, with, that makes with a that, lot of sense. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, with that said, the cut points that are being looked at is under... will be considered normal, and then 6.5 to 7.0 would be considered high risk of diabetes. And I will tell you there's also discussion about whether the term prediabetes should be used or dropped or whatever, so that's still in discussion. Mm -hmm. And then over 7% is would be diagnostic for diabetes. Hope, let me ask you something. Uh, I love that your name is Hope, by the way. I, <laughs> I always say that, that the best thing that health practitioners can do is give their patients hope. If you're just joining us, we are indeed talking to Hope Warshaw, who is one of the top diabetes educator. She's a registered dietitian. I have followed her work for my entire career, and I know that if I need a question answered about diabetes, blood sugar, uh, diets, carbohydrates, I want to go to Hope, and I want to find out what she says first. Hope, uh, with regard to diabetes then, these these pre-diabetes or these at-risk stages, mm-hmm. are they reversible? Yes. This is good so, news. And, you know, if if you want to know where I think we should be putting our health care dollars, <laughs> Yes, I do want to know that. <laughs> it's right there. Yeah. I mean, while I feel that nutrition counseling and certainly healthier eating and more physical activity will help anyone with type 2 diabetes and certainly people with type 1 as well, but I think where we could be getting our biggest bang for our healthcare buck would be in the space of prevention of or slowing down of the development of type 2 diabetes. Because the reality is that once you cross that line, and it's literally crossing a line in the sand, of being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, 
following that insulin resistance path that we were talking about previously, you have already lost somewhere between 50 to 80% of your insulin-making capacity in your pancreas. Wow. And the current recommendations for diabetes say once you are diagnosed with diabetes, you should be put on a blood glucose-lowering medication. And today, really, the first choice is metformin for a variety of reasons, if you can tolerate it. Mm. And But so many people are still under the notion that, oh, if I only lose enough weight, I can stay off of medications. And, you know, oh, if I need to be on medications, I must really have bad diabetes. Yeah. But the reality of the matter is that by the time you've reached that point of having diabetes, you've lost a significant amount of your beta cell function. Can we regain the ability of those beta cells to function? Well, you know, that's an interesting and good question, and there is work going on with some dietary components such as resistant starch that show there, there might be some slight reversal of that. There, is, there are several drugs on the market that could possibly, you know, have a reversal of some of that beta cell loss. I mean, I don't think anyone has shown that it's significant reversal, but, and I'm not at all, I try not to be the bearer of bad news, but I do try to be the bearer of reality-based information. Yeah. And I think there's far too many people that think, oh, I can just manage this with some weight loss. Right. And unfortunately, there's still way too many physicians who are continuing to just say to their patients, lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. Right. And A, it's not an easy thing to do. And B, most people to get and keep their blood glucose in control need to be on a medication. And reality is that through the course of time, there is continual loss of beta cell function. Hmm. And so particularly after 10 years of being diagnosed with diabetes, many, many people with type 2 need to take insulin. Hmm. And it doesn't mean that you have worse diabetes. It means that you've had diabetes long enough to lose most of your insulin-making capacity. You know, earlier when we spoke about those children, the Mm -hmm. overweight children, the children who are, you know, eating a a fast food McDiet, as I like to say, and not getting adequate time spent outside or with sleep, when you mention the cascade of events, it really brings home our very earlier comment about this being a horrifying statistic and a future that none of us want to see. I totally agree with you. I mean, I have a 12-year-old. I work really hard with her and her eating habits, and I I try to live the motto that actions speak louder than words. That's right. However, 
I have to tell you frankly that I am appalled at how unimportant parents seem to feel what they feed their children is. You know, and I have to bring something up, Hope, because I got a call last night from a friend who's a teacher, and she said, help me. My principal wants to have one of these um, nights, you know, where the kids go and they eat fast food and it raises money for the schools. And um, McDonald's does this. I know there are lots of different reading programs where kids get tickets to go to the Pizza Hut, you know. And I, and she needed my help as she wanted some studies showing that children who eat fast food more often are more likely to be overweight. And I pointed her to one of, I think, one of the leaders in the field uh, in terms of pediatric endocrinology, who is Robert Lustig. And, of course, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation also found data showing that the, you know, the closer proximity to schools, when we have fast food restaurants in close proximity to schools, we have greater yeah. levels of obesity, you know, and you think, my gosh, we need to have nationwide reform protecting our children's health and looking at the food that we serve in school and taking out soft drink machines. I mean, you know, these are the kinds of things that we as parents, let alone dietitians, have really been working towards. And yet, like you say, where is the outrage? Right. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know, it, it's interesting. It, to me, it's one area that parents seem to have abdicated the importance and the authority around um, and I, I hope we. I mean, I do feel heartened by the fact that I think we're we're moving in some positive directions and some places. Yes. Um, and I think it's going to take a lot of local efforts, and it'll be sort of the the meeting of the local efforts and the nationwide and the global efforts. Right. So, and and yeah. I think the farm to school movement is certainly um, an example of what you're talking about, the local mm -hmm. grassroots efforts to change at least the food system that our children deal with every day. Right, right. Um, but I applaud your friend for raising the red flag. Right. We, we, we need to have a lot more people doing that and saying, no, it's not right to give kids M&Ms in school because they did a good job. No, it's not right to do thus and such at, you know, a Girl Scout meeting. You can serve healthier food. And you know what? You can do an event without any food. Right, right. <laughs> it's like our whole world is built around food. Yeah, it is. It's so, funny. We went to the movies the other night, my husband and I, and, we were, you know, we were debating, you know, well, gosh, you know, are we going to get popcorn or what about, you know, we were thinking about the food situation. And I said, you know, I think we can actually sit and watch a movie for two hours and not eat anything. <laughs> right. You know, how did that start? Right. Now, I know you were asking me before, but we sort of got off on a tangent about prediabetes and reversal. Right. Let's get back um, on that track. Yeah because um, I think that's really important. One thing that I say to people is today is the first day of the rest of your life. Mm. So you cannot undo what you've done. You can only move forward from this point forward. And I think that's important because you shouldn't waste time looking back at what you should have done. Go ahead and move forward. 
And people we know, I mean, it's now numerous times, I mean, sort of the, the leading study, but there were, there were a couple of studies even before the Diabetes Prevention Program was conducted in the U.S. There was a Finnish trial, there was a Chinese trial that has now gone on for 20 years. And, you know, more and more studies are showing that with as little as 5 to 7% weight loss, which translates to roughly 10 to 20 pounds, and 150 minutes of physical activity a week or 30 minutes five days, that people can delay or prevent the progression from prediabetes to type 2. Now, even better would be that person who is overweight recognizing that, oh, I have a family history of diabetes, or, oh, yeah, I had two pregnancies in which I had gestational diabetes, I better hop to and do something. So we've sort of made this whole insulin resistance, inflammatory response the centerpiece of what we're talking about here. And I would like people to just think of that as a many-year progression of problems. And the earlier that you can implement a healthy eating plan and becoming more physically active, so healthy lifestyle in general, the better off you're going to be. And I always say that, you know, if you're 40 years old and you've got kids that you're still raising, I mean, what a better opportunity there is to do something healthy for yourself as well as the children that you're raising. You know, we talk about diet, of course, that's the focus of both of our careers, but there's been so much conflicting information in the press about, well, what is the healthiest diet? I was just talking to a colleague here at the radio station who said, uh, well, she's following a, a paleolithic diet. And I have another colleague who swears by a, I mean, she's super, super low carbohydrate diet, so much so that I, I'm very concerned about her. But let's talk a little bit about the ideal, if there is an ideal, diet plan. Well, I don't know that there is an, a quote-unquote ideal diet. I mean, this is this is the frame I like to put on this discussion because I think, you know, I, I agree with you that there, there's always, you know, new studies and, you know, unfortunately this diet and that diet and the flat belly diet and yeah. whatever. So the frame I like to talk about is if you think about a hundred-piece jigsaw puzzle, And you think of that as what we know about nutrition and healthy eating to date. I feel that we have somewhere between 85 to 90 of those jigsaw puzzle pieces pretty well nailed down, such as we know that fruits and vegetables should be part of a healthy eating plan. We know that beans and peas are a healthy thing to eat as long as they're prepared low-fat. We know that whole grains are an important piece of healthy eating. We know that eating a limited amount of saturated fat is a good thing and eating more poly and monos. I mean, those those statements have very good evidence to support them. 
And that's why those are essential elements of the dietary guidelines for Americans. And the guidelines for healthy eating for diabetes very much reflect those same guidelines. And these are pretty much international guidelines, are they, they not? Are. They absolutely are. They absolutely are. So, you know, I mean, there's a, to me, the science of nutrition, study of nutrition, as is all science, is an e- evolving science. And as we go on in time, there will always be new data. And I think, yeah, maybe there's... Some remaining questions, not many, but that's that other maybe 10 to 15, and I'm probably being generous, pieces of that 100-piece jigsaw puzzle that maybe we don't know. Well, what but, but we know a lot, and I, I think that when people say, you know, oh, they're changing their minds every day. Right. I mean, that's baloney. That, to me, is a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that you don't really want to, you know, take the bull by the horn and do the hard work because what you and I also know is eating healthy in our society today is damn hard work. It really is. If you're just joining us, uh, let me remind our listeners that we are speaking with Hope Warshaw. Hope is a diabetes educator, a registered dietitian, an accomplished author. In fact, I'm sitting here with two of her books. The most recent is The Real Life Guide to Diabetes, Practical Answers to Your Diabetes Problems. And I must say, Hope, that as I was going through this book, I thought, what a great, easy-to-read I just found it so easy to flip through the pages, and any part of the book that I opened had something in it of interest. And then I also have a book right in front of me that I've been using for years, which is that Guide to Healthy Restaurant Eating, which is always a challenge for those of us who travel or have to be on the road or choose a restaurant when we're working behind a desk. Hope, let me get back to the issue of diet then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Specifically, let's let's hone in on carbohydrate because... uh, well, not long ago. I think and I, it's an area of confusion. <laughs> it really is an area of confusion. And I'll tell you, at our, American Diabe- uh, at our American Dietetic Association meeting that's coming up soon, uh, Gary Tobbs is going to be a speaker. He spoke at the University of Missouri last year. And, of course, he's the one who said, what if they were all wrong and, and a high-fat diet is, is better and the mm-hmm. low-carb, this low-carb uh, movement is really something to get behind. What do you say to people who ask you about carbohydrate? I talk about carbohydrate in reference to a few things. I'm very big on creating frames for people to look at things. So let me just sort of frame in carbohydrates for a second. Um, Americans are eating and have been eating roughly 45 to 50% of their calories as carbohydrates for quite a long time. What has changed, however, is the quality of the carbohydrate that we're eating. And we have moved from eating more whole grains, fruits, vegetables, dairy foods to eating fewer of those important foods and adding a lot more added sugars. And one of the biggest areas of added sugars is what we're drinking, from sodas to sport drinks to fruit punch, and the list goes on. So to me, the discussion around carbohydrates is not a 
quantity discussion is a quality discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just having a conversation with a woman who has diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes, and she said that she restricts, in order to control her blood sugar, she restricts her carbohydrate to 20 grams per meal. And I thought back to my, okay, how much, do, how much carbohydrate do we need to consume for the brain to function? At least 130. At least 130 grams. So she's going to come up a little short. Yeah. What's going to happen? And, Melinda, you and I both know that there is no way she can be getting the whole grains, fruits and vegetables, and dairy foods that she needs to get in the variety of nutrients that she needs. And here's, I mean, this is a topic that I talked about in the Real Life Guide to Diabetes, and it goes back to, again, that centerpiece of our conversation today, that continuum and progression to type 2 diabetes. And unfortunately, there are many, many people like the woman that you're describing that are working really hard, and I compliment them to control their blood glucose, but what they need to be doing is eating healthy and start to take some blood glucose-lowering medication to be able to eat healthy and at the same time control their blood glucose. Mm-hmm. But it's a, very, it's a very challenging message to get across. It really is. Because we've had lots of promises about low-carb. Unfortunately, what happens when people eat low-carb is you and I know that we only get our calories from three large or macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, and fat. So if you're not eating that much carbohydrate, you're ending up typically eating too much fat and too much protein. And the kind of fat that people tend to eat if they're eating super low-carb is you're getting more saturated fat. And the majority of people who have type 2 diabetes, their biggest medical problem and cause of death is cardiovascular disease. Right. You know, I want to ask you something else. Uh, Is there anything else you want to add about diet before I move on to some of these other chapters in your book? Just that I would say there is no such thing as a diabetic diet. The range of the way that you can eat healthfully should depend on what your food likes and dislikes are and what you're willing to do. And so I never say to someone, here's a diet, follow it, because people can't do that. They don't do it, they won't do it, they can't do it. Um, And understandably so. What I say is, Let's look at what you're currently eating, and might I add, drinking. Right. (laughs) Because that sometimes is the easiest place to affect the change, um, is in in what you're drinking. Um, I mean, the average American is sipping and slurping six, seven hundred calories a day. Yeah. And if you just make a dent there and change nothing else, you'll make a huge dent. Yeah, and, and and we're drinking them in places we never would have imagined, like some of the coffee drinks mm-hmm. with over 600 calories right. were quite the People have as 
an afternoon pick-me-up. Right, <laughs> right, right. You know, you mentioned one thing that I, I do want to question you about. You mentioned resistant starch. Mm-hmm. Tell me what that is and why do you think it might hold promise? Resistant starch is found naturally in some foods like beans and peas. There's some natural resistant starch in breads and small amount in potatoes and in corn. And there is a growing body of evidence that is seeking to its role in this whole area of insulin resistance. And there's also, there's a few ingredients that are being made by manufacturers. Uh, One is called Hymaze that's beginning to be incorporated into some products, such as breads and pastas. And what about inulin? Wouldn't that be in that category, too? Inulin is a resistant starch. I feel the concern with inulin can be that it can cause some gastrointestinal effects. Okay. So I think people need to just be careful of how much they're using. So basically, if we're describing resistant starch, and I'm looking at your book right now, uh, we should look at them like a third kind of fiber. Correct. Okay. And that it's, and you also mentioned here the glycemic index and glycemic load. And I know when I first called you a couple days ago how we actually evolved to have this conversation today, I had a question about glycemic index and its value in uh, the diabetic diet as well as the diet of a, of a healthy individual. Do you want to touch on that? Um, well, you know, our, I think what our conversation evolved to is that in the general scheme of things, and I should say all things considered, I don't put a whole lot of value into the GI, um, glycemic index. I think that there are many other places to put our emphasis. And, you know, before people intricately get involved with looking at GI. Right. Like fiber, focusing on fiber. Right, eating more dietary fiber, looking at what you're drinking, um, trying to make some of your grains whole grains. I mean, you know, there's just a list of 10 to 20 things that I would encourage people to look at before starting to get a hold of these GI tables and, you know, choosing, you know, squash rather than potatoes. Right, right. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean... Unfortunately, Melinda, we live in a society that's always looking for magic bullets. Absolutely. And I do think that GI tends to fall into the realm of being a magic bullet. Um, You know, if as someone with, with diabetes, you find that one food versus another raises your blood glucose a lot more, you can choose not to eat it. Right. Okay, fine. But And for the person who does not have any problems with glucose control, GI has absolutely no ramification whatsoever. Again, it's these popular diet books that tend to focus on what, you know, this one value or attribute of a food, and then, right. uh, and then we're, before we know it, we're changing our lives around it without... That's right. We, and we don't do well changing our lives 
however long. No, we don't. You're absolutely <laughs> we can do right. It for about a week or two. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one thing I want to bring up. I I subscribe to the Nutrition Action Health Letter, with which the Center for Science and Public Interest publishes. Right. And several months ago, there was an article about sedentary lifestyles. And I thought of myself and probably you as well, you know, when you're not speaking, when you're not up traveling, walking through an airport, you're likely sitting behind a computer, writing, responding to email. And for all of those colleagues that we hear that we have out there and all of the listeners who have desk jobs, uh, it's really killing us, isn't it? What can we do? This particular article said even if you get up for an hour and exercise, as long as you're spending the rest of your time either sitting in a chair or sleeping, that's not good enough. What do you think about that? Well, I'm very much a pragmatist, and I think we need to be with people. And you, people can only do what they can do within the context of their lives. And, you know, if, I mean, I don't think it's realistic to say, oh, people should get up in the middle of their day from their desk and go do something for an hour. I mean, that's unrealistic. Right. I think what might be more realistic is maybe, you know, can you shorten up your lunch hour and get out for a walk or in bad weather, you know, walk around your building a little bit more or, you know, organize a walking group or, you know, choose a farther, further restroom when, when you go to the restroom. I mean, you know, just little ways to integrate. I mean, can you take the stairs when you enter your office building? I mean, things like that. Right. We we can't make it so hard for people that they can't do it. Right, and they have to make a living, and that's just part of our reality. Right. Another chapter that you have in this book that I really want to talk, uh, spend a few minutes talking about because it certainly speaks to me, and I'm sure many of our listeners face the same situation where we're short on time. What's the first thing we give up? It's sleep. And you have an entire chapter dedicated to the importance of catching your Z's. Do you want to talk a little bit about the research uh, related to sleep? Sure. Uh, it goes right along with what we've been talking about in terms of insulin resistance. Mm. Um, there are a number of studies now that are speaking to the fact that people who don't get enough sleep, enough quality sleep, have a higher rate of insulin resistance, have a higher rate of obesity, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, etc. Mm. A lot of women say that as, you know, as we enter menopausal years, it becomes more difficult to get that sleep. And we set up a real uh, stressful situation for ourselves because on the one hand, We've been very good about taking care of ourselves and our families, and we, we maybe we try to get enough sleep, but we find, oh, I can't sleep anymore. What do we do? Well, I don't know that women, menopausal women have, I mean, I definitely have heard of some problems with sleep, but I don't feel that all menopausal women have problems with sleep. Sure. So I certainly think if people feel that they are having significant problems with sleep, that they may proceed on being evaluated for sleep apnea, and there are some good ways of treating that. Um, I think there are a number of people that have sleep apnea that's not diagnosed and not treated, and so I would certainly advocate for that. Hope, do naps count towards the total hours of sleep per day? I think they do, yes. 
Okay. Well, I think it's a very interesting area of research, and I know the American Dietetic Association at their meeting in Chicago last year had a session on sleep, and I was amazed at just how many chronic diseases lack of sleep contributes to. But it's a challenge, just as getting enough exercise is. It is, yeah. And I think it's sort of part, it makes sense when you think about how much we've sort of thrown off our whole sort of equilibrium, if you will. Right. Well, um, I want to make sure that we've covered everything, all of the topics that you wanted to cover today. Are there some burning issues that you would hope that I asked but just neglected to do so? No. I mean, clearly we could, you know, talk for a long time. Um, You know, diabetes, particularly type 2, Prediabetes and obesity are really, you know, big issues that uh, we have a lot of work to do. Yes, we do. And I think that your earlier comment about focusing our health care dollars on prevention makes so much sense. If you had a magic wand and could, be, and could make some policy changes in Washington or could change the environment in some way, what would you do? One of the biggest things I think that we need to do is figure out some ways, some systems in which we can offer people long-term support in their weight control, weight loss, healthy lifestyle efforts. I think that that's what the research shows breeds success, is we know that it's small amount of weight loss, a small increase in physical activity that can bring you big big changes and big successes like preventing type 2 diabetes or delaying it. But people have a hard time implementing the changes and particularly maintaining changes. But programs and studies that have implemented a chronic support mechanism have shown the most benefits. So I would like to see those programs both implemented, utilizing the technology that we have at our fingertips today, and supported, and by supported I mean reimbursed. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we need a lot more either monetary or physical incentives to keep people engaged and keep them moving forward like, you know, reductions on health care premiums. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of work that I've done recently involves looking at agriculture and how our farm policies affect uh, the cost of some of these foods that contribute to illness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, thinking again beyond our plates to see what does make a, a food cheap. I had a little boy one time ask me why uh, chips cost less than fruit. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always remembered that comment. You know, I just want to mention to our listeners that uh, we have been speaking with Hope Warshaw. Hope is a fantastic diabetes educator. She has got uh, probably more experience in the area of diabetes and helping people deal with their diet and exercise habits than any other colleague I have in the dietetics profession. And when you talk about support, I do want to mention your website, Hope. It's www.hope.com. Warshaw.com, that's H-O-P-E-W-A-R-S-H-A-W, HopeWarshaw.com. 
and your website has a wonderful blog and great support tools as well as uh, your books and links to your articles that people can go and learn more. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. And I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Hope, and thank you, listeners. Thank you, Melinda.